17. They that conducted Paul brought him into Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for to come to him with all speed, they departed. And while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city was wholly given to idolatry. Therefore, disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and in the market daily with them that met him. Certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Others said, He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is, for thou bringest certain strange things into our ears, and we would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time doing nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill, the Areopagus, and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needeth anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him though he be not far from any one of us for in him we live and move and have our being as certain also of your own poets have said for we are also his offspring For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God has winked at, but now commandeth all men here to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he has raised him from the dead. The word of the living God. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, may we have open ears to hear what you have for us in Scripture today, Lord. May we be taught by your Scripture, Lord. May we be conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And may we learn from the workings of your Spirit in the Apostle Paul, Lord. If you'd be here in our presence, Lord, if you would be magnified among us, Lord, and if the preacher would be minified, Lord, that is what we ask for. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So, we're reading from Acts chapter 17. The context here is that Paul has just been run out of Thessalonica. He then goes to Berea, where he finds the Bereans who really want to understand the word. But the Thessalonians, who didn't like Paul, the Jews, find him in, in Berea and run him out of Berea too. So he ends up in Athens, the, the intellectual capital of the ancient world. You will know Athens 
uh, from its role in Greek democracy and its position as sort of an intellectual powerhouse where all the uh, great worldly philosophers like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, they all lived and taught in Athens. So he goes to Athens, this intellectual center of worldly intellectual academic life, and he says to them, what does he say to them? He says, I see you are all very superstitious. He says, I see you are all very superstitious. And what does he do while he's in Athens, by the way? What's the very first part of this? He goes and his spirit is stirred. His spirit is stirred because he sees that the city is given to what? Idolatry. He sees that the city of Athens, this intellectual capital of the world, is given to what? Idolatry. What do we see in the world today? Everywhere we go. Idolatry. What do we see from the academic intellectual elites? Idolatry. What do we see from the academic intellectual elites? Superstition. So this is a perfect, perfect chapter for the situation that we're currently in because we live in a depraved world. We know, uh, if you guys know Romans 1, we know that the pattern of depravity in man is that man chooses his sin and God says, I give you over to your sin, I abandon you to your sin, I abandon you to your reprobate mind, and then they fall into all manner of sexual depravity, immorality, and everything the Bible tells us not to do, man just chooses to do it and he justifies himself. Let's go to Romans 1 so that we can better understand exactly what this process is wherein man falls from God's favor. And why? Why does man fall from God's favor? The wrath of God, this is now verse uh, 18 of chapter 1 of Romans. Everyone should read Romans every single day. Martin Luther said that Romans is a profitable book to read for every single believer every single day. Uh, I thought that's a pretty, uh, (laughs) it's a long book for many people. And so uh, if you can read Romans every day, that's impressive and I commend you for it, and you should. But in Romans 1, we have a process. We have a process of depravity driving man away from God. It is very clear, it is very specific, and you can see it in the world today everywhere you go. Let's start actually at verse 16, because this is the whole crux of the argument that I'm trying to make here, which is how do we talk to the world? Okay, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. This is verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Hold on. We need to sit here on this verse for a second. In the King James, you need to slow down. You need to appreciate the language. You need to appreciate what's being said here. The wrath of God, the judgment of God, the holy and righteous judgment of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. They hold the truth and unrighteousness because that which may be known of God, that which may be known of God is manifest in them. That which may be known of God is manifest in them, in the unbeliever. Why? Because you are made in the image of God. You cannot escape the central fact of your existence. And if you attempt to escape the central fact of your existence, you are lying against the basic axiomatic truth, the thing that you cannot deny because it is in your very nature. And so you hold the truth and unrighteousness if you're the unbeliever. The unbeliever holds the truth and unrighteousness. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. 
okay? Uh, the, the illustration that I love is it's like when you're playing, there's a game that you play at the pool, right, where you've got like an inflatable beach ball, and you try to hold it under the water and hide it from all the other players, right? This is what the unbeliever does with the central fact of existence, which is that he is made in the image of God, but he refuses to acknowledge it. And so he denies this central contention that you are made in the image of God because the truth is in you. There is no such thing. There is no such thing as a man who does not know God. We all know God. The believer, the unbeliever, sorry, the unbeliever suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. He denies the truth, which he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I know this. Why? Not because I gathered it from some um, scientific, rigorous process, but because God says so. Okay? And here's a central point that we need to understand when we're communicating with the world. The, the world comes with a different set of premises than we come with. The world says, I need evidence. The world says, I need evidence. I need a video. I need a video tape of the resurrection to believe in the resurrection. I need a peer-reviewed, double-blind study from a Harvard, and it needs to be published in a in a magazine for me to believe. I have a, a long list of criteria for me to believe. But here's the thing: they will never believe. The unbeliever chooses not to believe. He suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. We could have videograph videotape evidence of the resurrection. They would not believe. Because why? Why would they not believe? What would they say? They would say, oh, well, there must be a natural explanation for it. There must be a natural... Oh, you have videotape evidence of the resurrection. There must be an explanation for it. The Jews had a pillar of fire and cloud following them around the desert, protecting them from the Egyptians. They still went and five minutes later made a golden calf. Why? Because man in his unrighteousness holds the truth in unrighteousness, okay? There's nothing you can say to an unbeliever to make him believe. Only the grace of God can make the unbeliever believe. Your job is not to convince the unbeliever. Your job is to defend the faith. How do I know that? Because if we go to 1 Peter chapter 3.15, we all know this verse. We've all heard it many times before, but we probably haven't heard the verse in its entirety. We all know this. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you for a reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. 3.15, 1 Peter. You guys know it? You've heard this. You've heard this before, right? But it's not the whole verse, right? What did I miss? I missed the first part of the verse, right? What's the first part of the verse? But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Give an answer. Give an apologia in the Greek. Apologia, apology, apologetics. What we're talking about today is apologetics, defending the faith. What we're called to do here is not to convince anybody of anything. You cannot convince the unbeliever. Only the grace of God convinces the unbeliever. But you can defend the faith. And you can defend the faith more rationally than any unbeliever defends their nonsensical views of reality. And here's why they're nonsensical, okay? The unbeliever, especially today, the unbeliever in America today is inundated with the, let's call them the benefits of Christianity, the benefits of Christendom, okay? Christ was born... Two, two millennia ago, he makes his church. His church is wickedly persecuted for the first several hundred years of its existence, and then it prevails. You know what's still here after... You guys know Nero? Caesar Nero? About, died in like 68 AD, and he persecuted the Christians. He would have parties where he would torture the Christians, and that would be the entertainment at the party. Okay? Guess what's still around? The Christian church. Guess what's not around anymore? The Roman Empire. Because every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. The story of history is the history of every knee bowing to Christ. Either in life or in death 
all nations will bow. And I know this because Matthew 28, what does Matthew 28 tell the church to do? The Great Commission. He says, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth is given unto me. Now go teach the nations everything that I have commanded you. That is the Great Commission. Go teach the nations everything I've commanded you. Not go teach, uh, you know, the people who are pretty friendly to you and who you've built rapport with and you've spent years sort of demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit to. And so now that they like you, you can teach them about Jesus. No. Teach all the nations. What did Paul do? Let's go back to the verse that we're looking at. Acts 17. What does Paul do? Paul goes to Athens. His spirit is stirred because of the idolatry. And what does he do? Does he start a basement Bible study with the people who believe? No, it's not a little insular, it's just us thing, okay? What does he do? It's, it's the most amazing thing because none of us have the courage to do this, but we should all have the courage to do this. Here's what he does. Therefore, he sees that the city is wholly given to idolatry, his spirit is stirred. Therefore, he goes and disputes. He goes and argues. Where does he argue? He argues in the synagogue. Imagine for a minute if I went to like some uh, non-denominational church that wasn't really preaching the gospel and not reading out the Bible, and I just started picking arguments with people. You know what many of my brothers would tell me? They'd say, you're being a jerk. You're not living in the spirit. You're not uh, you know, following this sort of uh, sentimental, uh, uh, nice guy, buddy Christ image that we have in our head from popular culture, right? But what does Paul do? Paul goes to the synagogue and disputes with devout believers, devout persons, and not just the synagogue. He goes to the market too. He says, I'm going to go directly to the religious authorities. I'm going to go directly to the civil, to the like mercantile class, and I'm going to deliver the gospel. And the philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, which we can get into later, they're, I mean, all the, Every philosophy of the world is sort of interesting to us because, again, we're all made in the image of God. Every philosophy comes out of that image of God. Now it becomes warped through sin and through depravity. And in this case, it's no different. Stoicism, uh, Epicureanism, these are interesting philosophies from the world. They're from men who are made in the image of God, so there's something true in them. But they are worldly philosophies that we can toss out because of why? Because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus Christ. You don't need... Here's the thing about the apologetic method, okay? Here's how... You need to defend the faith. You need to give an apology. You do not need to convince anyone. If you go to Proverbs chapter 26, and if you want to learn how to do apologetics... Look, I I love to debate. I love to argue. My brothers who know me really well, my father, like, they know this. This is like, justice was born to go into markets and synagogues and debate uh, reality with other people and to come to, to, uh, to, to defend the faith. I mean, I feel like it was, what, I don't know if it was what I was born to do, but uh, Lord knows that he put it in my heart. If we go to Proverbs 26, and I'm trying to give you guys a lesson in like 20 minutes here because all I want to do is I want to just break you outside, break you out of the worldly conception of things, right? The worldly conception is, in order to just to uh, defend the faith, you need to give evidence. You need to give a, a, a rigorous scientific account. You need to be academic. No, you don't need to do any of that. That's the world's way of having a reasonable discussion. That's the world's uh, way of arriving at truth. It's not the, Christ, the Christian way of arriving at truth. It's not. What did Christ do? Christ was fully obedient to God. We're going to get to Philippians uh, 2 if I have the time. But Christ was fully obedient to God. God was the central fact of Christ's existence because he was God. What does Proverbs chapter 26 say? 26, verse 4 and 5. 
This is fascinating because if you only read one of these verses, you would misunderstand the entire point. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou be like him. Answer not the fool according to his folly, lest thou be like him. When you're talking to the atheist and the atheist says, you have no evidence for God. Don't sit there and start listing evidence of God. Everything is evidence of God. God is the creator of all things. All things are a symptom of God's existence. You can't sit there and reason from evidence with the unbeliever. But what you can do is you don't have to argue with him according to his folly. You can do what? You can sanctify the Lord in your heart like 1 Peter 3.15 says. You first sanctify the Lord in your heart. This is the central fact. I'm standing in grace, Romans 5, I'm standing in grace, I'm arguing from a position of, of, of being a follower of Christ, of being an adopted son into the family, this is my position, I am a Christian, I believe in God, it's axiomatic, There's, I don't need evidence because the faith is put in my heart by God Almighty. You, unbeliever, need to be- pray, you need to pray that God puts belief in your heart. Answer not the fool according to his folly, lest thou be like him. So if you want to be like the unbeliever who argues from a bunch of nonsensical, who argues from the symptoms to the disease, you answer the fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. You see what happens here? Answer not the fool in his folly, lest he be like him. Answer the fool in his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Okay? So how does this work? The unbeliever comes to you and he says, what evidence do you have for God? You say... God has put it in my heart that he is real, that his son came and lived and died for me. But for a minute, let me step into your shoes. Let me pretend for a minute that you have some kind of rational argument to make. Okay, unbeliever, you think that we evolved from fish out of some sort of primordial ooze of chance in a billion-year-old universe. So how do you justify even this argument, for example? How can you say, well, evidence is how you come to truth? How, how can you reason from day to day? How can you um, have an expectation that today will be like yesterday and the day before? You have no reason for, for any of the order in the universe is completely unjustifiable in this worldview of the atheist where there is no underlying order giver, right? There is no underlying order giver. They cannot reason their way to any facts about the universe by this method. They are borrowing from the Christian worldview. And they're saying, well, this is right or this is wrong, but I don't want to admit that there's a God that makes it right or makes it wrong, so I'm just going to assert my own idolatry onto you by means of this argument. You don't let them do it. You cut them off at the knees. They do not have an argument. They do not have an argument. They're saying, oh, well, you should look at it like this. Should? Who says should and shouldn't? There's no God in your worldview. How, should or shouldn't? That doesn't mean anything to the atheist. You're borrowing from the Christian worldview to make your point. Let them know. This is where I stand. Are you not the fool? Are you not with the fool according to his folly? This is where you stand. Baseless, meaningless, uh, void of morality. You cannot justify morality. You cannot justify reason or logic or mathematics or any of the things that we all believe exist 100% of the time without God. Because God is the order giver. Without order, Without an ordered giver, you cannot have order, you cannot have reason, you cannot have logic, you cannot have morality. None of these things that we all accept as an objective, true thing in the world can you have under atheism. So you have to let them know. And that is what Paul is doing here. I'm going to wrap it up real quick. What is Paul doing here? What does he do? He says, I see you are very superstitious, brilliant philosophers of Athens, circa uh, 
like 60 AD, like the height of Athenian uh, intellectual achievement, I see that you are very superstitious. Immediately letting them know exactly what the facts of the matter are, that they worship an unknown God. That They say, today they'll say, oh, you attribute everything you can't explain to God. You have a God of the gaps. That's what the modern neo-atheist will say to you. But the neo-atheist has a natural explanation of the gaps. Anything that they can't explain, they will just say, oh, well, there must be a natural explanation for it. The stars themselves could align in the shape of the Ten Commandments, and the neo-atheist would still say, well, there must be a natural explanation for it. The aliens must be messing with us. That's what it's like. That's what it's like arguing with the neo-atheist. This is why you can't convince them, because they're depraved. They've been given over to a reprobate mind. You're not there to convince them. You're there to defend the faith. You're there to say, you can make this ridiculous, absurd argument. Only the fool in his heart says that there is no God. You can make that foolish, absurd argument, but I as a Christian am called to defend the faith. To defend the faith. Put on the whole armor armor of God. This is militaristic language. We are not in peacetime anymore, folks. We are not in peacetime anymore, folks. At least not in this country. It's not a Christian nation. It's not a Christian nation. You look at the founding fathers, and you confirm, like, you look at the founding fathers, half of them were deists, half of them uh, were... uh, were good Christians, but the fact is that this is not like we. The Declaration of Independence is the only reference to God anywhere in our civil code, right? The de- and the Declaration of Independence is not even part of the civil code. Okay, so we cannot play this game anymore. Like, oh, we live in a Christian nation; it's all okay. Uh, no, we are Paul in Rome. We are Paul in Rome. We are living in an empire, and we need to speak the truth in no uncertain terms that the atheistic position, that secular progressivist position, is completely nonsensical. There is no rational basis for it whatsoever. And we, in our, in our, I think in our ignorance, we have allowed them to get away with this argument for far too long. We've allowed them to get away with the argument for far too long. And you should all be able to stand up and clearly defend the faith. Clearly defend the faith. And all you have to do is you have to look at how Paul does it. He says... I see that you ignorantly worship this unknown God, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. He describes God from the get-go. He starts with the existence of of God, Yahweh Almighty, from the get-go. There's no beating around the bush, arguing from their position, evidentiary uh, arguments, none of the... He's not arguing from the Epicurean position or Stoic position. He's arguing from a Christian position. You worship this unknown God. Here's what that God really is about. He made the world, all things therein. He dwells in heaven, and he dwells not in temples made with hands. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's not worshipped with men's hands as though he needs anything. He doesn't need anything from any of us. We worship him not because he needs our praise, but because he compels us by the grace of God to worship him for his glory and for our good. And we need to... We need to establish all these conversations with the world from our position, our position in Christ, our standing in grace. I could go on and on about this. I don't want to take it too far. Neither is he worshiped with men's hands. He doesn't need anything. He gives life to all things. He gives breath to all things and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell in the face of the earth. This is really important because we live in a world where like race is an idol for many people right now. And you can say to the person that's arguing from some kind of position, well, Christians, you know, uh, one time defended slavery in 1860. Well, Paul says right here that we're all made of one blood, all the nations of the, of the earth. Okay, so while Christians might do dumb things because we're all sinners, Paul says... 
God hath made of one blood all the nations of the earth to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord. Why should we exist? So that we should seek the Lord, and happily might feel after him, and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. This is the gospel, this is the good news, that he is not far from any of us, folks. He is right there. When you get into one of these discussions, when you're... I'm talk, we just had a beautiful baptism last week, and so... This, there's this excitement, this feeling of like we're growing. We're, we are calling people out and, and they're coming into the fold. They're sheep coming into the pastor's flock and we are baptizing people with the flock. It's growing. This is what we are called to do is we are called to teach all the nations to baptize them in the name of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're called to do. And so now that you've got Acts 17 and you understand the apologetic method, don't argue from their position. Argue from your position. Defend the faith. And the people that hear, they will understand if they're made in the image of God, which they all are, and God calls them, they will not have a choice. It's not about you convincing them. It's about the power of the gospel and the fact that God moves in people's hearts when they hear it. And how do I know that this is, the, that this is what we're called to do? Because he says in verse 30, in the past, God has winked at our ignorance. He has looked at, for, for 6,000 years, he looked at the men of the earth. One time he did a flood, he took them all out. Then he allowed them to grow in their ignorance and, and, and prosper all over the world. He winked at their ignorance, but not anymore. Now he commandeth all men everywhere to repent. So when the atheist says some nonsense in front of you, at the, in public, at the market, in the synagogue, or, or the, uh, uh, the pagan, or the heathen, any other non-Christian belief system that's fallible and wrong, you can sit there and know that you have scriptural support for you saying, no, you're wrong. Here's Christ Jesus. Here's the truth. Here's why your position is absurd. Dismantle it. Defend the faith. That's what we're called to do. John chapter 14. My grandfather was one of my best friends. My grandfather lived to be almost 92 years of age. The last couple of years of his life, he lived in my home. It was a great blessing. I'll always be thankful for that. He had seven children and a whole bunch of grandchildren. And his eyesight began to fail. And uh, he would ask us occasionally to read some scriptures to him. And his favorite chapter was John chapter 14. Uh, he, he came up through the depression. He came up with difficult times with uh, a bunch of children. He decided that if he went in the grocery store business, at least he'd have enough food to feed his family. And so that was his uh, basis for that. And then he was a farmer later on. But I would read his Bible. Uh, Corbin is a fan of gr Gorilla Tape. Before they had gr Gorilla Tape, they had masking tape. And my grandfather's Bible has uh, masking tape all around it that uh, he would patch it up. And so it's, uh, it's special to me to read out of granddad's Bible and to see stuff that he marked and underlined in there. This chapter is, uh, is a real special chapter. And it should be special to us right now. Uh, Brother Danny mentioned the times that we're in. I had one person tell me last week that... Uh, all the news that I watch is bad. Can't get any good news. Well, if that's your experience or your experience in life is that there's difficulties and struggles and trials, 
and that there's just not a whole lot of encouragement in many areas of life, thank goodness that God gives us some scriptures and some truths to encourage us. You might be discouraged about what you hear on the news. You might be discouraged about those poor folks in Afghanistan. You might be discouraged about the, it seems like, the direction that, that our country's going. Uh, you might be discouraged when you look around, or you might, if you look at yourself, uh, self sometimes is discouraging to us. We, Paul says, that that I would do, I do not, and that that I would not do, I do, and, and we look at ourselves, and oftentimes that is discouraging to us. We look around, and it seems like sometimes that things are not getting better, they're getting worse, and uh, just seems like that's the case oftentimes. God blesses us with some seasons of enjoyment and encouragement. The songwriter says, a few seasons of peace I enjoy, and they are succeeded by pain. So if that is your lot, thank goodness there are some encouraging words in God's Word. God, through Jesus Christ, used these words to encourage his disciples. The Lord's people should be able to come to the house of the Lord and to be encouraged. They should. John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Anybody here ever experience a troubled heart? There's some good news here that Jesus Christ is encouraging us through some of the promises, some things that will help us when we experience a troubled heart. We're going to have it. We're going to experience it. But there's some things that will help us. Let not your heart be troubled. And then he starts giving us all these promises that encourage us in the midst of a troubled heart. He says, let not your heart be troubled. He says, ye believe in God, believe also in me. So first of all, the good news is, if you have a troubled heart, there's something encouraging for you that if you have a belief in God, and you have a belief in Jesus Christ, we're taught that we can be overcomers in this world, and ultimately in the world to come, we're complete overcomers, so if you have a belief in God and a belief in Jesus Christ, that's a great blessing to you right here. Brother Danny was spot on when he said that uh, we can't teach somebody to believe. You can't even argue them into belief. That belief comes as an evidence of the Spirit of God when God quickens you and gives you spiritual life and makes you alive. Then you will have a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. And then he, he tells us something right here. Jesus Christ gives some encouragement to these followers right here. He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And he says, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, in the midst of the challenging times, in the midst of the troubles of life, to be reminded that Jesus Christ 
is preparing a place for you and for you and for you to know that right now Jesus Christ is in glory preparing I don't understand all the preparations he could do it in the in, in just the snap of a finger he could do it in the uh, twinkling of an eye but he says that he's preparing a home for you that in itself ought to encourage us do you know I find that oftentimes when I get discouraged it's not so much the circumstances that are around me but it's my thinking it's what I'm thinking about that causes me to get discouraged. When I begin to get discouraged, usually when I get discouraged, it's not when I'm thinking about the Lord. It's not when I'm thinking about heaven. It's not when I'm thinking about what Jesus Christ has done for me. It's when I'm thinking about this world and all the challenges and all the struggles. We're taught if we are risen with Christ in Colossians chapter 3, he says, set your affection not on things of the world, but on things above. This directs our mind to things above. He says, in my father's house are many mansions. And he says, and I am going to prepare a place for you. And he says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and I will receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way that ye know. Now, Thomas presents a question right here. I love the interaction. I love how that that through the inspired word of God that we can see the reaction of Thomas. And we can put ourselves in the place of Thomas right here. Not only do we have the first promise that we believe in God. Not only do we have the second promise that Jesus Christ is preparing a home for us. But then we have a third promise right here uh, that, that, that is revealed in the question that Thomas presents. He says, and whither I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord... We not know whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Now, you can't really probably fault Thomas for that, because probably if we were there, we would have even more questions than what Thomas would. But Thomas is representative of our questions, of our response. And so Jesus answers it clearly. Now, if if you were told about heaven, if you were told that, Jesus Christ is preparing a home in heaven and it's for you. Wouldn't you yourself want to know how to get there? Wouldn't you be interested in knowing the way to heaven? Thomas says, I don't understand all about what you're talking about right here. He says, I I, I don't know where you're going. And he says, "And, and, and, and I don't know how to get there. And You can find out a lot of theories and philosophies on how to get to heaven. And many of them will confuse you. Many of them are disheartening because you'll find out that there's a list of requirements for you to get to heaven. And if you don't meet those requirements, that's very discouraging to you. If you realize you can't measure up to the mark on getting to heaven. Some folks believe you have to have good works that outweigh bad works. But if you actually know yourself well enough and you're realistic with yourself, you'll realize that that a lot of times you have more bad thoughts than you have good thoughts. And so you're out of, uh, of, of, uh, of any hope of achieving heaven in that manner. 
And so it's very frustrating to find out the way to heaven and find out that you don't have what it takes to get there. And you can't get it yourself. And so Thomas asked a question right here. He says, Lord, we don't understand where you're going. And he says, and, and we don't know the way. And so Jesus Christ reveals another promise right here that's encouraging. The whole, the whole benefit or one of the benefits of these promises that Jesus Christ is revealing to us right here is that we're not to let our hearts be troubled. We're not to just go around all the time in despair. We have something to be encouraged about. He says, first of all, you believe in God. You believe in Jesus Christ. Secondly, I'm preparing a home for you in heaven. And he says, then I'm going to tell you how to get there. Look what he says. Thomas says, I don't know the way. He says, how can we get there? Jesus Christ answers him. And he says to Thomas and those that were with him, Jesus Christ said unto him, I am the way. I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Let me see if I can present this. The way that it sometimes is presented is that Jesus Christ is the way to heaven. And you yourself need to Accept Christ. You need to seek Christ. You need to follow Christ. You need to pursue Christ in order to get to heaven. But what I believe that Jesus is saying right here is, I am the way. I'm the way you're going to get there. I'm the way 100% on how you're going to get there. It's not based on you following me in the way, but I am the way. In fact, he says, I'm coming back for you. Now, can you imagine Jesus Christ if he says, I'm coming back for you? I mean, I, I fully believe that Christ is coming back for me. But whether I believed it or not, do you think that would hinder Christ in finding me, locating me, in taking me on to glory? Not at all. Even my unbelief is not going to hinder Christ. I believe most of the time. But there's sometimes I'm like the father of the child. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I'm thankful that it's not hinging upon Anything that I do, we, we, we read the old minute book. I don't have it here this morning. The old minute book, the reference in 1803. And one of the, one of the fundamental principles that, that they uh, continued to reiterate throughout the minutes of this, this church right here is that, that it is not up to us at all. Not at all. It's solely based upon the Lord. And so what he's saying right here, he says... I am the way. There's not multiple ways to heaven. Christ doesn't have, God doesn't have a way designed for the unborn. And He doesn't have a way designed for folks that have not reached, quote, the age of accountability before the age of 12. And then He does not have another way 
for folks that maybe the mentally challenged that that he, he doesn't have another way for folks that uh, don't have the ability to hear or to see such as Helen Keller. There's not a variety of ways in which God takes his people to heaven. There is one way, and that is through Jesus Christ. That's the only way. But the good news is, it's not that we choose that way. It's that he chooses us, and he is the way, and he picks us up, and he says, I'm your way to heaven. I don't know if I'm explaining that. In my mind, I know what I'd like to say, but it's just not coming out quite the same way. But 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 Jesus Christ is the way that we're going to get to heaven. He is going to pick us up. He's going to take us there. He's going to take us even when we might not be pursuing him or or, or, or choosing him. He chooses us and he'll take us all the way there. Now, look at look at what he says. He says, I am the way I am the truth. I am the life. And he says, and no man cometh unto the father, but by me. John chapter six. I love John chapter six. It says, we are not pursuing him, but he is pursuing us, and he takes us all the way. It's not an offer. The, the declaration of the message of Jesus Christ is not an offer to dead sinners. It is a declaration of what Christ has done and is doing and will do for us. It is a victorious message. We have a victorious Savior, and it's a victorious message. It's a declaration of what Christ has done for us. Jesus said unto him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. He says, I'm going to take you on home to glory 100% completely by me. If ye had known me, ye should also have known my Father, and from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Desiring some more evidence there. Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long a time with you, and yet thou hast not seen me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father, and how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and the words that I speak of you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Jesus Christ says, even the works that I've done, even the works that my Father has done, declares, as Brother Danny mentioned, even the, the, the handiwork of God, the creation of God, declares the glory of God and who He is. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, uh, that I do, shall he do also, and the greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do in that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. If ye love me, keep my commandments. And I pray that the Father, he shall give you another comforter that he may be able to abide with you forever. I, I love these next two verses right here. Really good principle for us. So he starts out and he says, let not your heart be troubled. He says, number one, you believe in God. That's a great promise. That's a great blessing. Number two, 
I'm preparing a place for you. And that where I am, you're going to be with me someday. That's a great promise. No matter if everything around us is falling apart, we know where we're going to end up. We know that our life here is but for a short season. And we'll be gone. But we'll be in eternity forever. He's going to prepare a place for us. Number three, he's coming back to get us. And he's the way that we're going to get there. You know, I, I, I get lost just going a short distance without GPS. I remember when I first moved up here, I'd go over to see, uh, remember one time I went over to see Mike and Judy Hayes. In, uh, they live outside of Westminster. It's like going to another country for me. I mean, it, those crooked roads, I'd never been on crooked roads before in Texas. They're flat and straight, and you can see the next town 10 miles away. You know where you're going, and I never got lost. I remember I got so lost going to their house. One time flipped a car, hit a, a patch of ice, and they knew I was so confused. This was back before GPS and cell phones, and, and I had a great big roadmap atlas on the side, and I tried to follow that and would get off the beaten path. That When I'd go visit them, that, that Brother Mike would, when I'd leave, He'd, he'd drive me out about 10 miles and he'd say, he'd get me on a road, maybe it was 24 or something like that, and he'd say, just stay on this road right here and you're going to end up in Bel Air. <laughs> I can't even get to Westminster without a GPS. Much less be able to figure out how to get to heaven. I'm so glad that there's somebody else in charge of that. I'm so glad that Jesus Christ is the way. I don't have to worry about a roadmap to heaven. I hear folks talk about a roadmap to heaven. I don't have to worry about a roadmap to heaven. I don't have to worry about GPS fading out if you go down in a valley or over a hill. I don't have to worry about getting to heaven because I know that Jesus Christ is going to take me there. Now, if Jesus Christ redeemed you upon the cross of Calvary and He gave His life and He shed His blood for you, can you think for a minute that He wouldn't take you on home for glory? He says, I am the way. That's how you're going to get there. And then He says, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. But the next one that's really, really good that I'd like to just touch on for just a minute. He says, while I'm preparing a home for you, and while you're still here in this old wicked world of sin and sorrow. And while you're having bits of discouragement. And while you may look around and it may seem hopeless and helpless. And while you may think that things are out of control and they're not getting better. I'm going to leave you something. It's going to help you a whole lot. And every single one of you, as a child of mine, I'm going to give you something. And it's going to help you in the hard times. And it's going to help you in the difficult times. And it's going to help you in the sad times. He says, I'm going away. But I'm going to leave you a comforter. Now, oftentimes that's what we need is a comforter. And he says that comforter 
He's going to abide with you forever. He's helping us right now. He says, and this is what's really, really good. He says, I'm going to leave you the Comforter, which is the Spirit of Truth. Whom the world... Brother Danny talked to us about that. He says, whom the world cannot receive. Hmm. Don't have the ability. Have you ever, have you ever experienced the Comforter? In the midst of your lowest times? There's something that kind of holds you up. That encourages you. That helps you. That keeps you. He says he's going to abide with you forever. He says it's the spirit of the truth. Which the world cannot receive. Because it seeth him not. Neither knoweth him. He's describing here. The Holy Spirit. And he says something right here. That's really really special. For you and me. He says even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not neither knoweth him but he says but ye know him he says and this is so good how do we know him he says you know him you know the comforter you know the Holy Spirit because he said he dwelleth in you the Spirit that dwells in you. The Holy Spirit, the Comforter. He says, He dwells in you. And He shall be in you. He says, He dwells in you. And He'll be in you. And He says, I'm going away to prepare a place. But while I'm gone, I'm leading you something that's going to help you a whole lot. So, there's a whole lot of promises here. First of all, that He's going to prepare a place for us. That we have a hope and a belief in the Lord. That He's coming back for us. And until then, until He comes back for us, He's given us the Holy Spirit that dwells in our hearts. He put it there. He put it there. That's what keeps you going. That's what encourages you. That's what keeps you keeping on is that spirit that's dwelling on the inside that God put there. He's going to take us home to glory. We're going to be delivered from this world someday. But until then, we've got something on the inside that's going to help us along the way. So as a result, not looking at what's around us or ourselves, but looking at the Lord and looking at heaven and realizing that you've got the Spirit dwelling inside of you, as a result, let not your heart be troubled. May God bless you.